Well, good morning, everyone. I want to echo Doug's greetings to uh, all of you who are worshiping here with us. It's good to kind of see your faces, your eyeballs, your hair, your glasses. Um, to those of you who are worshiping at home or across the community, um, we're really glad you're with us too. And hey, my friends down in Grundy County, I wish I could be there with you too. Um, I'm Alice Shirey. I'm on staff here at Orchard. And uh, I don't have to uh, tell you, this is not new news to you, right? That this is a hard time in our world. This is a hard time in our country and in our community. And I just want to say to you, if you're struggling these days in any way, you are not alone. Almost everyone I know, including myself, on a lot of days, is struggling. And I think it's, I think it's just important that we acknowledge that times are hard. But I want to remind us all that the church was born in hardship. The church grew and thrived in the midst of oppression and occupation and struggle. And many, many followers of Jesus were martyred. They were killed for their faith. And the church lived under constant threat Nevertheless, the church thrived. And the church, now, when and if she lives up to her calling of pouring herself out for the sake of the world in suffering love, the church thrives during hard times. Because God specializes in doing extraordinary things through very ordinary people. And if you've been with us this summer, you know that's what our series is about, ordinary people from the Bible through whom God does extraordinary things. And the ordinary person I want to explore this morning with you was born during a very hard time in human history. He was born into a time of genocide. His people were being slaughtered into a time of slavery and oppression and brutality. Do you know who it is? It's Moses, that's who. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Alice, you know what? The first word when I think of Moses is definitely not the word ordinary, right? I mean, way to go. Way to pick Charlton Heston for your ordinary person, right? <laughs> Side note, I'm 100% confident Moses did not look like Charlton Heston at all, okay? Of course, he was a dark-skinned man from the Middle East and not this white-haired guy from the United States. Regardless, Alice, way to pick the guy who is arguably the single most important figure in the Old Testament. How are you going to convince us that Moses was just an ordinary guy? Well, I want to tell you, and what I want to explore with you this morning, is that Moses didn't start off important or extraordinary at all. We pick up his story in the second book of, Bi of the Bible, the book of Exodus, which describes the world into which baby Moses was born. The setting was Egypt, a place where Abraham's descendants, this is from the book of Genesis, Jacob's sons and daughters 
were all brought to Egypt courtesy of Joseph and his Technicolor dream coat, if you know that story at all. And, 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 and uh, Joseph's people, the Hebrews, the Israelites, were doing what humans do. They were procreating and expanding in number. And this population explosion of this minority group in Egypt struck fear into the heart of the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh. And so he decided out of this fear to enslave the Hebrews, the most brutal, sinful, ugly form of human oppression. And when that didn't stop their growth, the Pharaoh decided to command that every Hebrew baby boy who was born be thrown into the Nile River to die. Welcome to the world of baby Moses. An ordinary baby boy who owed his life to five ordinary women. Two bold, subversive midwives, Shipra and Pua, who decided to defy the king's cruel orders and instead saved as many Hebrew baby boys as they could, including Moses. Third woman, Moses' incredibly brave mama, who hid her baby boy from the Egyptian authorities for three months. Can you even imagine this? Any of you who've ever had or been around a newborn baby, Keeping a newborn baby quiet from the murderous authorities in a time when there was no pacifier, no specially designed sleep swings, you know, that moved your baby like this, no white noise machines, no long car rides, no vacuum cleaner to make the perfect noise, none of that. And she did it. And after three months, Moses' mom, in this final act of desperate hope, put her baby boy Moses in a basket, strategically placed him near the reeds on the bank of the Nile River, right where the king's daughter bathed. Fourth woman, Moses' big sister Miriam, who was tasked with keeping a watchful eye on baby Moses while he slept in his basket on the reed, in the reeds of the Nile. And then Pharaoh's daughter, fifth woman, who found the baby Moses as she came to the Nile to bathe and who took him in as her own baby, even though she must have known this was a Hebrew baby. Hebrew baby boy. A baby her father wanted dead. And in one of those incredible God-ordained coincidences of the Bible, both Moses' sister and Moses' birth mama made it seem like it was the Pharaoh's daughter's idea to pay Moses' birth mama to nurse Moses until the time of weaning. I love that part of the story. And then his birth mom bravely returns Moses to Pharaoh's daughter to be raised in the world of Egyptian royalty. The writer of Moses did not have to include any of those details. But wants the readers to know that Moses owes his life and all of the history that comes next in Moses' life to these five brave women. So Moses grows up to adulthood in Pharaoh's household. He gets the best education money could buy. He's indoctrinated into Egyptian culture, into the Egyptian way of life. And some scholars believe that Moses was maybe even being groomed to become the king of Egypt. But God has other plans. Because God specializes in working with ordinary people to do extraordinary 
things. So let's pick up the story now. Somehow, Moses, as he was growing up, must have learned that he was a Hebrew by birth. And so at around 40 years of age, we read in the book of Exodus that Moses decides to leave the comfort, luxury, and safety of the palace, walk through its protective walls, where he saw an Egyptian taskmaster beating a Hebrew slave. Exodus 2, verse 11, this is what we read. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were, and he watched them at their hard labor. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. And what I want you to notice in this text, in this story, is that Moses chose to go outside of his safe walls and see real-life suffering. The first thing Moses did was that he saw. Moses saw. And this part of the story has caused me to ask myself, as an ordinary follower of Jesus, as a follower of the God of Moses, and in this difficult season that we're all currently in, Alice, how are you doing at seeing those around you? Even when my days are hard and I am tempted to keep my eyes on myself, am I open, are my eyes open to the suffering of my fellow human beings? Are your eyes open? And listen, I'll be honest with you, I don't like to see suffering. There's this commercial on TV about animal cruelty. Have any of you seen it? That shows dogs suffering under the hot sun without water, sick and wounded. And the minute I see that thing come on, I am racing for the remote, screaming to someone to turn it off. I don't want to see it. I can't watch the hard part of movies. Just ask Chuck just last night. I put a kitchen towel over my face. I put my head under a pillow. I put my fingers in the ears. I leave the room and yell at Chuck, tell me when it's done. I try to make suffering all go away. But refusing to see the suffering of our world is not our calling, church. We are called to see the suffering in our community, in our family, in our neighborhood, in our church. And this was so, so true of Jesus. Over and over and over, we read in the accounts of Jesus' life that Jesus saw. He saw the suffering crowds. He saw the broken man. He saw the abused woman. He saw the sick child. He saw the left out. He saw the marginalized. And Moses saw the human pain and oppression and brutality and inhumanity that was right outside his window. He saw it. And then... Moses blew it. (laughs) Look at what he did. Exodus 2, verse 12. Looking this way and that, don't you just love that imagery? When you know you're doing something wrong, stealing a cookie or doing something, right? Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. 
Moses did what so many of us do when we see something that makes us uncomfortable or angry or sad or mad. He acted rashly and impulsively and impatiently, and he acted out of his very understandable human emotion. And he killed the taskmaster. And when Moses heard, when Pharaoh heard what Moses has done, he tried to kill Moses, so Moses ran. He ran right into the desert to a place called Midian. Okay, so let's recap. We have Moses, a little Jewish baby born into a world of genocide, given up for a forced adoption, living his early years in the lap of luxury, possibly being groomed to take over a nation, now a murderer, a frightened fugitive hiding in the wilderness. And there he would live as a humble shepherd for the next 40 years of his life. 40 years in the wilderness. Have you ever been in a place like this? Where your world shifts from good to bad in an instant? One bad choice, one epic failure, one fall from grace. And I know so many right now who are in a kind of wilderness. A wilderness of loneliness or or job loss or a serious accident like Jackson or some kind of relationship struggle. Lord knows quarantine has put a little stress on our relationships or a financial struggle. Or maybe you're in a spiritual wilderness. You know, where your soul just feels dry and exhausted. You're disillusioned by your faith. You have more questions than answers. And some things just don't make sense anymore. And very often it feels like God is absent in the wilderness. It must have seemed that way for Moses. Forty years. But there is this theme, this thread that runs throughout all of the scriptures from the Old Testament to the New that tells us, reminds us that God is not absent in the wilderness. He is not absent in your wilderness, but God is always profoundly present and always at work and always, always, always working to bring good out of evil and light out of darkness and hope out of fear, and freedom out of slavery. And if we allow the wilderness to teach us its lessons, we can emerge with newfound humility, and perhaps a fresh understanding of how to listen for the voice of God. And maybe... We don't know because there's like 12 verses for these 40 years of Moses' life. Maybe that's what happened with Moses. So we pick up Moses' story 40 years later in Exodus chapter 3. And this is what it says. Now Moses, right? So he's in Midian. He's met his wife. He was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, now he could have 
run for his life, right? But Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Moses stopped. Right? So not only did Moses see, you can go to the next slide, but Moses stopped. He stepped aside to see this bush that was burning up, and God called his name. And this is what God said to Moses. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites and the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and Jebusites, and I always want to add, and the Cellulites, but of course they're not in there. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. This is God speaking. And I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. This is the voice of God, and this should comfort us. God sees our pain. God sees your pain. God sees our suffering for sure. But this section of this story should also challenge us. Because we, God's people, are called to see oppression, to hear cries of injustice, and to know people's pain too. We are called to see suffering like Moses did, but when we do, we are almost always called to stop first, to hear from God, lest we rush in and engage in self-determined action that often ends in disaster, right? Lest we murder the taskmaster, so to speak. We are called to stop. Right after George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis in broad daylight, right after Breonna Taylor was shot to death in her own apartment, right after the young man Ahmaud Aubrey was gunned down for jogging while black, it seemed like, probably because of the quarantine, that the eyes of white America were once again open to the suffering and injustice and pain that is a constant in the lives of our black and brown neighbors. And usually what happens when this happens is that there is this understandable desire from white America to rush to action, to do something, to fix it. But too often, at least I know in my life, this drive for immediate action is short-lived. There is something in so many of us here at Orchard, uh, there was this desire to do something, to say something, to fix something, but some wise friends said, you know what, let's stop first for a moment and let's be listeners and let's be learners and let's try to understand how we got to this place in history in this country and let's do the work to see the deeper issues at play, which is hard work. 
And so a bunch of us here at Orchard, I think, I don't know, 100, more than 100 people signed up to read this book called The Color of Compromise. I just brought the cover of it. It's a book by Jamar Tisby, who's a black Christian historian. And this book unpacks relatively simply the long history of the white church's complicity with racism. It's a painful book to read, but I cannot recommend it to you more highly. And in my own reading of it, I have been forced to stop and to let God do business with me about my own complicity with racism. It's a burning bush moment, so to speak. Believe me, I would much rather just do something than have to face my own self, than have to face my own sin, than have to face my own darkness and my own failures. Trust me. And as I read that book and studied this part of Moses' life, I have been forced to ask myself, how well am I doing with not just seeing suffering around me, but stopping long enough to ask God a few questions? Questions like, God, what do I need to understand better here as I see this suffering? Who do I need to listen from and learn from about what this feels like and what's going on here? And only then do I ask, God, what is mine to do? We are all, like Moses, called as followers of Jesus to see suffering around us. And we are all called to stop, to hear from God. But I want, what I want you to notice now, what I want you to notice next, now that God has Moses' attention, is that God does not say, Hey, Moses, I see and hear the suffering of the Hebrew people too. Therefore, I'm going to send a miracle. Therefore, I'm going to send some angels. Therefore, I'm going to send a certain political party. Nope. Forty years after Moses first saw the oppression and slavery of his people, 40 years after that, God finally says this. Exodus 3, verse 10. So now, go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, the Hebrews, up out of Egypt. Friends, Moses was 80 years old right now. 8-0. And God's just now putting him in the game. Retirement, bridge, canasta, cribbage, golf, shuffleboard, not from Moses, because God said to him, so now go, I am sending you. So after Moses saw, and after Moses stopped, Moses stepped up, and he organized and led the world's greatest protest, the original March for Freedom. Moses went right to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who had a bounty on Moses' head, and he said to him, let my people go. I picture signs like Hebrew lives matter, or no justice nor peace, or better yet, no justice? Then you're going to get flies, gnats, bloods, frogs, boils, and locusts. It's my favorite slide. Moses walked right up to power. Moses walked right into the face of danger on behalf of people who were suffering. 
But, 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 don't miss this. He stepped up even though he felt ill-equipped. Look at all of his excuses. <laughs> I just love Moses. Who am I that I should go? It's the first thing he says. And then he says, well, who should I tell them sent me? And then he says, well, what if they do not believe me or do not listen to me? And then he just goes, you know what, God? I don't speak very good, okay? I'm thick-tongued. I'm slow in speech. I really can't do this. And then he finally just bottom lines it with God. And he says, please, my Lord, please just send someone else. I love Moses so darn much. This is no Charlton Heston, friends. Moses right here is more like Charlie Brown. I mean, he's more like me. He's more like you. He's more like all of us, painfully aware of our weaknesses, our fears. And we look at things that God calls us to do and we think, you know what, that's too dangerous. I'm not qualified. And also, you know what, God, just find somebody else. But you know what, despite all that, Moses said yes. And after a bunch of plagues, Pharaoh let the Hebrews go. And they raced out of Egypt, chased by the Egyptian army, saved again by God at the Red Sea, and led by 80-year-old Moses to the Promised Land through a little 40-year detour, once again in the wilderness, where they learn how to be God's people, and God gives them the Ten Commandments. You know how this works. And we learn that this ordinary Hebrew man, Moses, through all of this history, finally meets with God face to face. From the beginning of the Bible... We read about God alleviating suffering, injustice, and pain. And he does this work through ordinary, very sometimes unwilling people like Moses. And I pray, church, like us. The world we live in is shifting around us, friends. You can feel it, can't you? And we are in the midst of a time when we are being forced to see suffering and injustice. And church, this should be our finest hour. We have such an opportunity to focus on the needs of people around us, the needs of people outside these walls. And I believe that God is waiting for his people in this country to stop arguing about masks and politics and whose back-to-school plan is better and to step up and to do God's work and to do work like Moses did. And to stand up to power and to demand justice and freedom for suffering people. And will that be easy? No. But it will be good. Because God works through ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And Moses provides us the 